Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the looming changes to the BC Land Act to share decision-making powers over public lands in BC with First Nations. Now, there are lots of questions and concerns over this now. Will First Nations now have a veto over public land use decisions in BC? How is this going to work here now? That Robin Younger standing by to discuss. Have a listen here first to the minister responsible here, Nathan Cullen. Boy, there's been a lot of uh, reaction to this, and this is coming down fast, by the way. This will be introduced in the legislature here in just a few weeks. And listen to the minister here talking to our own Simi Sarah here. He says, hey, look, there's no, why are people so surprised? People should have known this is coming. Have a listen. I'm a bit confused why folks are surprised by this. There's this, uh, I think, a narrative or a sense that there's something defensive in the government or something that's not being uh, forthright about it, but that's, it's the opposite in the sense of we've entered these agreements already. This is actually going to be better and provide a lot more clarity and certainty over land use in B.C. Let's discuss now with my guest, Robin Younger. Robin is a lawyer at Macmillan LLP. He is an expert in environmental and indigenous law, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Robin, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Okay, Robin, let's talk, first of all, the Land Act. Can you tell me what that is? I think most people in B.C. would not even know what the Land Act is. What is it? Yeah, especially people that live in urban areas. It's the act that controls the use government's um, issuance of tenures authorizations for people to use crown land. So, you know, if you if you run a ski resort, you're going to have a tenure issued to you under the Land Act, allowing you, you know, a lease to use government public lands. If right. you operate a marina, you'll have a, a Land Act tenure to, you know, operate on the foreshore. Um, airports have tenures. You need land act tenures to build roads. They're all over the place. There's there's probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of these in the province. Yeah, yeah, tens of thousands for sure. Globe and Mail reported forty forty thousand active tenures in the province right now, and and public. We're talking about crown land, right? So this is what almost all of the province, correct? Correct. More than ninety percent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. More than ninety percent of the land base here. Okay. What what kind of concerns are you hearing here, Robin, from your clients or for people who've got business interests on the land base about how this decision-making process, this shared decision-making is going to work? What I'm hearing the most relates to the question of the public interest under the Land Act. Right now, this is all about Section 11 of the Land Act. Sounds technical, but it's a pretty fundamental provision. It says the minister can issue tenures, leases, license of occupation, rights away, all these things you need. Um, if it's in the public interest. Those words are in the act itself. Mm. And only the minister has that power. There's no other people that have the power except minister, ministers, delegates. So if you amend that legislation to give a different group, whichever group, doesn't matter whether it's Indigenous or whoever, but a second decision maker, the question becomes, you know, how do those two decisions fit? What if they can't agree? Yeah. Who sets the terms and conditions? You know, who gives the reasons? Uh, you know, what if you need amendments? Do you have to go back to both? There's just a you know a whole bunch of very, very complicated questions. And that's what yeah. I'm hearing people. Yeah, one question that jumped to mind for me was, let's say you have a controversial project. Let's say someone wants to start a mine or a ski resort, and maybe it's 
the government determines, yeah, this is a good project here it's in the public interest, but the, a local neighboring First Nation says, we don't want it. We don't want it here. Who, who makes the final decision there? Does, do, would First Nations have a veto over that just in that case? Well, the, you, you've hit the, you know, the nub of the issue here. Right now yeah. in Canada, we have constitutionally protected Aboriginal rights, one of the few countries in the world that have this. And sure. the Supreme Court of Canada says, if you want to build a ski resort or mine or whatever, and there's Indigenous groups that are potentially affected by what you're doing, you can't run roughshod over their interests. You can't treat them like, just like any other group. You've got to consult them. You've got to accommodate right. them. Yep. But here's what the court said at the end. The government must make decisions, and they must reasonably balance Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal interests. That's what the Supreme Court of Canada said, and they said there is no veto. Multiple times they've said it. Mm-hmm. So this regime that's being proposed would give a veto over those decisions for areas where an agreement is entered into. Because this would only apply where the government signs agreements with First Nations. And, right. you know, the minister has, has referred a couple times, I think, to the one up in the Taltan Territory involving a mine. But I think it's really important to note that there's negotiations ongoing right now in the Pender Harbor area with the Seashell Nation to give the Seashell uh, Land Act powers, Section 11 Land Act powers over dock management. So, you know, it's a big issue. Yeah, for sure. Let's have another listen here to the minister responsible. Robin, get your thoughts. So this is the Land and Waters and Natural Resource Minister, Nathan Cullen, here, talking about these changes to the Land Act. He says this will actually be good for uh, resource development and for all of, all of BC. Have, let's listen. It provides the predictability of what the process is. It diminishes dramatically the potential for a lawsuit because you already have an agreement between the province and the First Nations that's impacted. And that allows investors, it allows the resource company to know exactly what the process is in front of them and not face suddenly a lawsuit popping up or protests, etc. Okay, does he have a good point there? Because we all know that a lot of these, if a First Nation objects to a big project, it can get tied up in court for years, right? Would this eliminate that? Well, uh, they can get tied up in court, but it often doesn't. And, And I think the thing that has to be, you know, put on the table here is that when you develop a major project, it's very, very common to have an agreement with local Indigenous groups, including paying significant financial benefits. That's very, very common in all industries. Yeah. Most industries, if not all. How is yeah. it going to work if you're paying benefits to an Indigenous governing body who's also now a statutory decision maker? It raises some significant conflict of interest and potentially anti-corruption issues. I, I, don't, I don't know how that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have another, I was speaking to Robin Younger, Macmillan LLP, talking about the looming changes here to the Land Act as the BC government prepares to share decision-making powers with First Nations. Let me play another clip here for you for the minister responsible. This is Nathan Cullen. And he says, well, I've heard a lot of concerns that People won't be allowed to walk around on public land or they won't be allowed to go hunting and fishing where they used to go before. And you'll hear him here trying to say that's not the case here. This doesn't cover 94% of BC. Let's listen here. This is Nathan Cullen. I've heard it described by some that this is sweeping. This will affect every square kilometer of BC instantly. Nothing can be further from the truth. All it does is says, look, we passed the Declaration Act together as a province. That means it gives us the ability to make decisions in a new way with First Nations. Yeah, and the Declaration Act that he's referring to there is the 
the Declaration of Indigenous Rights but from the UN, right, which we've adopted in British Columbia, correct? Uh, correct. That's what he's yeah. referring to. So, you know, on your on your question about is he accurate? Uh, actually, yes. In in some respects, he's accurate. This is not going to change every square inch of public land tomorrow, and I right. certainly haven't suggested it would. I don't know who might be, but you know, I, I, it wasn't me. But what I can tell mm-hmm. you is this: in in 2019, the government passed, as you mentioned, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, right. and it requires the government. I'm going to read it to you, Section Three: The government must take all measures necessary all measures necessary to ensure the laws of British Columbia are consistent with the, with the declaration, the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. The UN declaration is not law. It's not international law. It's not Canadian law. It's just an instrument passed by a resolution of the United Nations. No, no country in the world that I'm aware of has made it its law, but British Columbia passed law. that says we're going to take all necessary measures to ensure our laws are consistent with it. And that's what they're doing now. And, you know, right. I put out an article at the time, talked about they're going to have to review the Mineral Tenure Act, the Forest Act, the Petroleum Natural Gas Act, etc. Here's what the UNDRIP says. The, the one, the, the, you know, the, agree, the instrument that BC is saying we're going to ensure all our laws are consistent with. And, and they're working on it. Right. Indigenous peoples have the right to own, use, develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources they possess by reason of traditional ownership or traditional occupation. The right to use, own, develop, and control those lands. That's yeah. not the law of Canada under our constitution. So I don't know how they're going to reconcile that, but that's, that's what's driving this. It's not going to change every square inch tomorrow, but you know, to suggest it's not important would be uh, untrue too. All right, we continue our discussion here about these looming changes over the uh, Land Act in BC. This is, covers Crown land in the province, but 94% of the province and the BC government preparing legislation here to share decision-making powers over these lands with Indigenous groups where there is a, an agreement on, on a project or an initiative. My guest, Robin Younger, McMillan LLP, got a question about it. Phone me right now, 604 604- Two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number. Star ninety eight ninety eight. Toll free on your cell. Deb in Victoria. Hi, Deb. Go ahead. Hey, hey, Mike. Um, I have a question about this. I, I'm totally in favor of resource development. However, you know the NDP are you know when the indigenous. Okay, you're you're breaking you're breaking up really bad there. I'll try to get a cleaner connection here with you, Debs. Try to stay on the line. We'll see if we can get a better connection for you. Okay. Let's try Mike and Vernon. Hey, Mike. Hey, good morning, Mike. Um, I got a question for your guest, and this revolves around recreational property, access to recreational property, docks and stuff, which you did mention, and and how how could this possibly affect it in the future? I know it may not happen right away. For example, a lot of properties are accessed through logging roads and what have you, which were built for the logging industry. Um, could those possibly be shut down? And also, you know, what about marinas and, and what have you that are on bodies of water? I do know that in the Sunshine Coast, there were some problems with, uh, with people losing their docks over there over um, some ind- indigenous land claims and what have you. Does he have any thoughts on that? Robin, your thoughts. What, what, Robin? What is happening up there in the Sunshine Coast with this dock? The management of docks up there. What's going on there? So, um, what what happened there is the government has entered into a, an agreement, not one of these agreements, a, a different uh, agreement with the Seashell Nation. They committed to working together on dock management. 
and they created a dock management plan that was very controversial. Um, Former Minister Barry Penner was appointed a few years ago to to go in there and make recommendations. And now they're proposing further amendments to it that uh, would impose some significant restrictions on on the length of docks and rebuilding boathouses, etc. And people are quite upset about it. And, you know, the, the government has passed an order in council in 2022 mandating Minister Cullen and another minister to start negotiations with the seashell to give him to give them statutory decision-making powers under the Land Act, like we're talking about today. And these amendments that they're going to make in the Land Act tie together with that ongoing agreement. It's a Section 7 agreement under the DRIPA, and it's going to give the Seashell Nation actual decision-making powers, along with the government, on who can get a dock permit or amend their dock permit. And, uh, you know, um, the Pender Harbor and Area Residents Association has, has written a letter to the minister. It's on their website, raising a number of questions, asking why are they shut out of these negotiations that appear to have been going on for over a year now. And um, I don't think any good answers have been given. Hmm. So therefore, just to get back to the caller's question too, for, so for people who own land that are, are access over like a logging road or maybe they have a dock on a body of water, should they be concerned about that? Yeah, there's there's two parts to answering that question. One is not not everything that is regulated on public land goes through the Land Act, yeah. um, so you have to look at each situation. But you know, many issues of access over Crown land to your private land uh, that would often be covered by the Land Act. Uh, using the foreshore to lake, if you want to put in a dock, that would be covered by the Land Act. But here's probably the most important point: this is just the Land Act that we're talking about. The, the, the Declaration Act that Minister Cullen referred to commits the government to reviewing every law, every one, and making all necessary efforts to ensure they're consistent with the UN Declaration. So this hmm. is just the start of the Land Act. The others have to follow, and that's why this is a very important issue, even if it doesn't change every square inch tomorrow. Robin, thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts and analysis on this today. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Tim. Talk about the one-year anniversary of decriminalization of drug possession in B.C. This kicked in exactly one year ago today. 2.5 grams. That is the legal possession limit in B.C. now for heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, crystal meth, ecstasy, and fentanyl. We're the only province in Canada that has done this. How is it working out so far? Well, last year, the first full year of decrim, overdose deaths went up to a record high. Now, that's despite the government saying decriminalization is a success. It will continue. Supporters of this say the death count would be even higher without it there's a lot of alternative opinions and dissenting opinion on this of course let's discuss it now with my guest eleanor sturko bc united mla surrey south very pleased to welcome eleanor back to the show eleanor thank you for coming on today good morning mike thanks for having me okay eleanor thank you for doing it what are your thoughts today one year of decriminalization we just had the record high overdose deaths last year as well has this been a success or has it been a failure It's a failure. It's absolutely not a success. I think that we have to look back to what was promised a year ago and what the actual intent that was 
sold to the public about entering into this experiment. You know, today, now that we see that it's a failure, they've changed their tune. They, they said it really didn't have anything to do with stigma. This was all about keeping people out of the justice system. But if you look back, even on the government's website today, it cites that they wanted to reduce stigma for people who use drugs to encourage them right. to reach out for the help that they need. And that certainly hasn't happened. Right. So, yeah, the idea was reduce the stigma of drug use and then people will be more confident to come forward and, and get help. But it doesn't, doesn't seem to be working out that way. And if we go back to the very beginning of this, I want to play this clip here for you, get your thoughts. How this was promised, how this was supposed to work as it was rolled out in British Columbia. And you're going to hear Carolyn Bennett here. She is the former federal minister of mental health and addictions here, and she's questioned about how this decriminalization is going to work in B.C., and how it will be evaluated. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts. What criteria are being used to measure the success of BC's decriminalization pilot project? Robust evaluation and research as we go forward. So do you commit to stopping decriminalization should these outcomes not be achieved? Absolutely. Okay. Robust evaluation and research was promised from the very start. Eleanor, have we seen that? Has there been robust evaluation and research going on on this? <laughs> well, if there has been, they certainly certainly haven't been showing their work. I don't believe that it exists, or I believe that it actually shows that it's a failure, so they refuse to show that data. You know, I think that actually the stigma that people who use drugs face today is worse than it was a year ago. You know, uh, everywhere you go, people feel frustrated. They feel angry with the normalization of drugs. They feel angry and resentful that this government has not been able to um, stop the number of deaths. It's gone up, in fact, as you know, and which is terrible. I don't think that anyone's taking any pleasure in the fact that this idea is not working. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that it potentially is making things worse. We had the federal minister pledging to end this if they did not meet uh, public health indicators and safety indicators. And certainly, you know, from all reports, the health indicators haven't been met. And it's time yeah. for us to change directions and really work to do things that will be effective. Yeah. When you hear that the federal minister there saying that there will be robust evaluation and research of this as it goes forward. Here we are a full year into it. And now listen to this. This is Lisa LaPointe, the chief coroner of BC. She was asked this week, is decriminalization a success in BC? Listen to what she says here. Listen close. I don't have any, I haven't seen any data. I think it's going to be very hard to measure the impact, positive or negative, of decriminalization. And I think that's where it's really important that we gather data. Okay, she hasn't seen any data one year. This is the chief coroner. And you've got yeah. the people, the people mm -hmm. of BC, the people of this province were, were promised at the start. And you just heard it. Robust mm -hmm. evaluation and research. And then you got the chief coroner says she hasn't seen any data on it. Your thoughts. Okay, well, I've. I have two thoughts on this, and they're really important. The first one is, is that here she is on your show, this clip, saying that she never saw any data one way or the other about decriminalization. And yet when she delivered her last coroner's report with the 2,511 deaths, she was absolutely adamant that it was not a result of decriminalization when she had no data. So that's a false statement that she made, first and foremost. Second of all, this entire experiment was put forward on the caveat that we would have robust data, that that data would be publicly available, that there would be consultation, and that this would be something that would actually help. 
This is just a pilot. That means it can be ended at any time. And if we look to, for example, Oregon, who this government cites as being one of the locations that, you know, they're following in terms of decriminalization, they're actually repealing Measure 110 and going back to recriminalize drugs to engage people in a different way to try and turn direction. And I think this is exactly what our government needs to do, to do now. And this is what a BC United government would do. Okay, speaking of BC United MLA, Eleanor Sturko, on the one-year anniversary of drug decriminalization in British Columbia, we're the only province in Canada that has done this. And another one of the promises here, Eleanor, for your thoughts, that this would be rolled out in conjunction with expanded supports and services for people to get off these drugs, to get detox and treatment and rehab, that that would be expanded at the same time. And I want to play another clip here for you from the, the chief coroner talking about decriminalization. So listen closely to what she says here, especially at the end here. Let's have a listen. Lisa LaPointe here. Decriminalization is not responsible for these deaths. The goal of decriminalization didn't mean that more drugs were available. The goal of decriminalization, as stated, was to remove the stigma so that people could access supports. We don't have those supports in place. We don't have those supports in place. This is fundamental to the whole decriminalization project. Eleanor, your thoughts? Well, the government promised in 2020 when it was running that it would fast-track decriminalization. Now we see the fruits of that fast-tracking because that means that between 2020 and 2023, they had all that time to scale up resources, to provide free treatment beds, to make sure that people had free and equitable access to all kinds of treatment options and recovery options in British Columbia, and they failed to do so. Then they opened the floodgates, and now we have absolute chaos in certain circumstances. We see the death rates going up and the public's you know, satisfaction with what's actually happening going down. I think that what we need to do is create a total environment where people um, it's conducive to wellness and that every door is an open door. And certainly we don't see that right now. This is probably the biggest failure right now in terms of the opioid crisis that this NDP government could have done. They've well, had every opportunity and they have absolutely failed to deliver on it. Well, well, if the if the BC minister responsible was here right now, if, the, if Health Minister Adrian Dix was here right now, for example, I, I know what he would say. He would say we are expanding treatment, right? Like just the other day, the government announced 180 new addiction treatment beds for BC. I mean, you know, this is after a year into decrim and 2,511 people are dead. But, you know, at least now, the other day, they said we're oh, don't, there's 180 beds coming. What did you think of that announcement? Well, I think that announcement's insulting to the people of British Columbia. A hundred of those beds already existed and then eight, rolling out 80 more. You know, the reality is, is that they're not treating this like a public health emergency. And providing free treatment beds by helping do surge capacity funding into private treatment centers is something that's been available to them from day one of their government. They failed to do that. So, you know, they, it's very insulting also that they saved that announcement for the day after the coroner's report on toxicity deaths. It's absolute yeah. BS, to be honest, a political move and insulting when we have, according to their own estimates, like a quarter of a million people with uh, substance use issues and yes. 180 free beds. And one of the biggest barriers for people who are who are suffering from addictions and substance use right now is a financial barrier where people are making too much money for subsidized treatment, not enough money to pay for their own. And that is a huge failure and something that they could have addressed from day one. Okay, 
Decriminalization is the law of the land here in BC one year into this. Another big part of this is the safer supply issue. So the idea here is if people are going to use drugs anyway, they are dying from fentanyl and, and other very dangerous illegal street drugs. So if people are going to use these drugs anyway, give them a safer supply of opioids. So give them a lab-tested, government-certified drug that they can take instead. Now, right now, you need a prescription to access these safer supply drugs, and there are calls to massively expand this as well. Uh, maybe you don't wouldn't need a prescription to get these opioid drugs. Maybe we should make these drugs available to youth. Let's have a listen to Jennifer Charlesworth here, BC's representative for children and youth, and I'll get your thoughts. We have to be open to the notion of a prescribed safer supply and, frankly, a non-prescribed safer supply. For some young people, they're not going to go to a pharmacist. They don't have access to the doctor. Okay, so some young people uh, won't go to the doctor. So maybe, what, a naturopath should be able to give out these drugs? Uh, Eleanor, your thoughts? Well, you know, we have said in the Select Signing Committee on Health that the only model of giving people prescribed pharmaceutical alternatives, because there is no such thing, honestly, as a safe supply. You can still overdose. Well, that's why they, well, that's why they call it. Well, that's why they call it safer supply now, right? It used oh, no. to be called safe but supply. Now they say it's it's safer supply. It's still not safer, and I think that uh. using that nomenclature is doing a disservice, especially to vulnerable people. So, you know, the the reality is is that we made several changes in our province that have drastically changed our province. I would add, um, under the you know premise that we are dealing with a health care issue, it is a public health overdose emergency, and therefore we believe it should be a medical centered and recovery oriented. Uh, pathway forward. We do think that we should be vastly expanding people's access and services um, to allow them to obtain uh, pharmaceutical alternatives and then be titrated over to agonist therapy and other treatments that can help them, which is why about three weeks ago, BC United put out a press release calling for a virtual opioid dependency program. We're not just criticizing here. We have viable options that actually other jurisdictions are successfully using. And so I think it's absolutely crazy that we would try then to go to some sort of um, other non-prescriber market when we haven't even, this government hasn't even done half the effort to actually scale up the true medical-centered options that are actually available and can work. Talking about the one-year anniversary of decriminalization of drug possession with Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA. Let's go to your phone calls here. James in Richmond. Hi, James. Go ahead. Oh, hi, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, this topic is near and dear to me. I've had uh, problems with drugs and alcohol for my whole life. And, um, you know, people forget humans are animals and they're going to follow the path of least resistance. And if you if you provide drugs for them and you make them easily available, that's the path they're going to go with. I struggle with my mental health on a pretty daily basis. And, you know, some days, if I could just go and grab some drugs and just, you know, finish myself and, and uh, you know, escape, I probably would. But I want to be a happy, functioning member of society. And uh, people aren't going to get better by getting their drugs. They're going to get better with recovery. And that's the only well, thing what, what about? Okay, James, let me ask you this. So the idea behind Safer Supply is you can get people transitioned on to dilaudid, uh, right, which is the opioid part of the safer supply program here in BC. So at least people are not dying from taking fentanyl. Does that does that make sense to you? 
they need to there needs to be a detox there needs to be abstinence like this you know they're going to sell the delauded they're going to get whatever gets them the most high that's what you want when you're an addict you want whatever's going to get you the most high so you start giving people uh drugs that they don't necessarily want but that they can turn into something else that's what they're going to do like I said, path of least resistance, whatever's easiest to get you the most high. And that's what okay. you do. Okay, James, thank you for the call. I mean, we've talked about this before, Eleanor, this idea of diversion, as it's known, that these safer supply drugs are being actually sold on the street. And then so drug users will get, get fentanyl anyway with the money they get from selling this. How do, we, how do we know that's going on? I mean, there's lots of anecdotal evidence of that, but is there any firmer evidence that that's a really big problem? Yes, there is. In fact, um, you know, the testimony of, of uh, some of the top addiction specialists in Canada, you know, that also our uh, chief public health officer has done a survey of which um, I know for a fact, because I've actually seen the results, although they're not publicly available yet, that, that their doctors have noted that diversion is a problem. We've even had testimony and admissions from people who use drugs themselves. This is something that has gone on. And in fact, Diversion, though, is something that existed before the risk mitigation guidelines came out. You know, diversion is when people would take medicine maybe from grandma's cabinet and use it for other yeah. intended purposes. But this this taking these drugs home with people with serious addictions issues has really exacerbated the problem. But, Mike, I want to be clear about something is that, you know, it's not that we don't think there is a role for prescribed alternatives to play in stabilizing people and then getting them on to um, other therapies. But we think that there needs to be, first and foremost, safety guidelines, you know, maybe witnessed a consumption of those drugs, or at least much more tight parameters about how much can be taken at a time. And then the other part is, is that we want these programs to be recovery oriented, which means that, yes, you get a prescription. Yes, you have access to these pharmaceutical alternatives. But that there's an end game here that it's not just perpetually going on and on in an addiction because you know even with a prescription you can still overdose and you can still Mm -hmm. die or there can be other harms associated we want to have a true recovery oriented program that actually helps people get well and just doesn't keep them sick forever okay we're going to continue it closely here as we go forward into year two of this eleanor thank you for coming on today mike always a pleasure thank you Let's talk about fighting an unfair parking ticket now. Have you ever got a parking ticket you just thought was brutally unreasonable? Man, this really burns me. Anytime I get a parking ticket anywhere, it always just burns me so bad. I just hate getting parking tickets. I always try to avoid them. Now, if you get a ticket at a municipal parking meter, you that's a pretty tough one to fight. What if you get a parking ticket in one of these private parking lots. Man, those tickets can be very, very expensive, in my opinion, excessive. Now, let's talk about the guy who parked at the Wendy's parking lot on Camby Street in Vancouver and got a huge ticket. All right, so his name is Eric Findlay, and in December, he went to the Wendy's on Camby, parked in the lot. He got a ticket, a huge ticket. Why... Because the private parking company running the parking lot for Wendy's said that he went across the street to the Home Depot instead. So they said he wasn't in there eating a Baconator. He went to Home Depot. So here's your ticket, $86.50. Got Kyla Lee standing by to discuss. 
First, let's have a listen to this report. Global News reporter there, Consumer Affairs reporter Andrew Wah here. You'll also hear from the driver, Eric Finley, telling his story here. Let's listen. We all came out to our cars, and mine had the ticket on it, and we were all surprised because I had only been in the Wendy's. Eric was hit with an $86.50 fine. The ticket said the attendant saw me leave from my vehicle to go to Home Depot. But Eric says he only visited the restaurant and even had a receipt to prove it. At no time, he says, did he leave the property to go anywhere else. He tried to dispute the ticket, filing an appeal with Diamond Parking, submitting his restaurant receipt and contact numbers of all his family members who accompanied him that night. Still, his appeal was denied and it was case closed. Morally and ethically, I I don't believe that I should pay this. Okay, let's discuss this case now with my guest, Kyla Lee. Kyla is a traffic lawyer, Acumen Law, and I'm always grateful for her coming on. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being for doing this. So this is a really interesting one, I thought. And this guy, it seems like this guy did everything right. He said, look, I didn't go to Home Depot. I, I ate at this Wendy's restaurant. I've got my receipt to prove it. I've got witnesses to prove it. There were people with me. And this company's still told him to get lost and pay the money. Now, it did have a bit of a happy ending we'll tell you about in a minute. But first of all, Kyla, let, let me ask you your thoughts on this. What do you think of this one? Uh, I'm not surprised. These companies Mm. essentially operate in an unregulated wasteland. They're not required to follow the law or the rules of procedural fairness when you submit an appeal to them. They're not required to consider all of your evidence or arrive at any sort of reasonable conclusion. They can rubber stamp uh, the parking ticket as much as they want, and it's totally up to them whether or not they exercise their discretion to revoke the ticket. Yeah, can they charge you any fine they want? Like, is there any limit on it? I don't believe there's any limit on how much they can charge you for parking. I mean, it's essentially what the market would demand. And we look at some of the rates for parking in downtown Vancouver and that people continuously pay. Um, And you can see that, you know, the market demands high rates and these companies get away with uh, imposing those high fees on parkers. Yeah. Do you think some of these fines are excessive, like $86 and 50 cents? I mean, come on. Like this is what do you think of that amount? The amounts are excessive, particularly relative to the length of time that people often leave their vehicles. You know, if you if you park in a private parking lot and forget to pay, it's not like you're leaving your vehicle there for days. You're leaving it there for a couple hours, maybe even less than an hour. And yet you're getting a, a fine that is, you know, sometimes more than 10 times the amount you would pay had you paid just for the period of time that you were parking. Oh, yeah. No, they're really so cute. Now, this story had a a happy ending. So this driver, Eric Finley, I think he was very wise to reach out to Global News, the consumer affairs reporter, Andrew, there because she does an awesome job in these type of stories. And once she got involved here, well, you'll find out yourself here. Let's have a listen here. So Andrew gets, gets involved in this case and let's see what happened here. Eric decided to contact Consumer Matters for help. After we reached out to Diamond Parking on his behalf, his ticket was canceled. The vice president of operations stating in an email, once we can establish the customer provided an economic benefit to our client, then it makes sense to cancel the notice. Oh, okay. Once Andrew calls your office, now they cancel the guy's ticket. So, I, I mean, Kyla, you know, I, you have, is there any doubt in your mind, like, if, if this guy had not contacted the media or gone public on this, he probably would have, they still would have been hunting him down for the $86.50, so you think? Yeah, I think economic benefit in that uh, in that statement is is really code for we would have had very bad reputational damage had this yes. story gone to air. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
Yeah, so they, they canceled the guy's ticket, which is good. Now, what is your advice, though? Like, if someone gets one of these tickets, if it's unfair, I mean, certainly you should try to dispute it, appeal it, I guess. But if your appeal fails, and you were you were prominently included in this story there on Global 2, and I heard you say that you think people should pay the ticket so that it doesn't affect your credit rating. Is that right? Well, I mean, some tickets can and some tickets can't. Um, and the problem is it's not always easy to discern which ones are going to. There are private parking lots owned, especially in Vancouver and other major cities that are actually owned by the municipality. So they are uh, governed by city bylaws. Um, and those ones can have an impact on you and they have more power to collect them. So I don't, you know, I don't encourage people to judge for themselves whether it will or will not. And, and just to pay the ticket if, if push comes to shove and your appeal is denied. But one thing that you can do um, that my colleague recommends um, and that has been successful uh, in the past is pay the amount you would have paid for the parking. Send them a check for $7.50 for the hour that you parked there that you didn't pay for. And in the reline of the check, write that this is full and final settlement of the claim against you. If they cash the check, which undoubtedly they will, then that can essentially be their acceptance of that and they lose the power to go after you for the rest. Okay, that's really interesting. And I've heard this advice before too. And it's like, okay, so in that example you cited, let's say you're parking at a private parking lot. It's $7.50 an hour to park there. You return to your vehicle one hour late. And then there's a ticket there saying, you owe us $100 fine. Forget that. Just send them the $7.50 and be done with it. Will they accept that, do you think, typically? They almost always do because it's mm. a lot easier for them to take $7.50 than to continue sending you letters and hire a collections agency to go after you uh, for more than $7.50. From an economic benefit standpoint, $7.50 today is better than the potential of getting maybe $100 down the road. Yeah, or maybe even nothing if they can't find you. Right. Yeah. And nothing if you yeah. never pay. Yeah. And here's the other side of it, though. And I've talked to people. I already got some emails from listeners this morning who are very familiar with this Wendy's restaurant on Canby Street saying like this is a super, super duper busy area. There's this busy Home Depot across the street. And it's not uncommon for people to go into that Wendy's parking lot and park there and then go shopping at a nearby store. And I guess you could understand why. Wendy's would say, we don't want that. You know, we, you're not allowed to park here if you're not coming into our restaurant. So can you understand that they, they've got a reasonable case to be made for doing some aggressive policing on the parking in there, do you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. I don't fault a company for, for trying to protect its assets or its resources. At the end of the day, you know, if you do park somewhere unlawfully, you don't pay for parking. You're you're trespassing. You're committing a civil violation. Um, but in addition, you're also technically committing theft uh, under the criminal code. You're stealing a, a, a service from that company, um, the parking service, and you're not you're not paying for it. And and that's unlawful. It is unlawful yeah. to steal parking. Yeah. Although, on the other hand, I do think some of these fines are excessive in these private lots. What if you get a parking ticket at a municipal parking meter and you think it's unfair? Are those difficult to fight or dispute? There's a saying that we have in, in law, which is you can't fight City Hall. Uh, it is very difficult to dispute municipal parking tickets, essentially unless you actually paid 
and unbeknownst to you, there was some sort of malfunction with the meter, then uh, you are on the hook for that parking ticket. You can't yeah. park at a meter that's malfunctioning if you know it's malfunctioning. Uh, it doesn't matter if you put money into the meter. I represented somebody once who tried to pay for their parking in the meter with pennies, but it didn't accept pennies. This was back when we had pennies. Um, <laughs> and she she walked away. She got a parking ticket and she fought it saying, I paid. And the city hall said, it doesn't matter. Everybody knows meters don't accept pennies. We don't accept pennies you can't pay with that (laughs) so pay up and not with and not with pennies (laughs) all right we're talking unfair parking tickets with my guest kyla lee lots of calls luke in vancouver hi luke go ahead hey michael hey kyla uh i obviously can't give legal advice i'm not a lawyer but what i can say is i believe the private lots uh sure the ticket is what it is and if you don't want to fight and go through the hassle it's 18 dollars for a new license plate Eighteen. What do you mean? Plates on your car. Go to go to any auto plant for eighteen dollars. You get new plates. Change the plate on your car. So then what? Then they can't track you down to make you pay the ticket. Yeah, I don't believe they have access to the uh, police or ICBC databases to for the VIN numbers and things. They only go and they take a picture of the back of the car. Oh, it's not going to go anywhere. They can't. Kyla, Kyla, what do you think of that? I have heard about this strategy, um, and I I can't say that I endorse it because it feels a little bit like fraud to me, but uh, I don't think it is fraud, but it doesn't feel right. And so I I don't endorse it, but yes, I have heard that this is a strategy that works. Okay. And and is it true the private companies, they can't can't call up ICBC and say, hey, this guy owes me money. What's his new license plate number? Can they do that? They cannot. They can only get information okay. related to the plate at the time that they oh. access the data. Interesting. John in Vancouver. Hi, John. Hey, guys. Uh, good topic because I've had a, a bunch of problems. I've got the app for the parking meters now for the city parking meter. So I just do that because I've gotten so many tickets in the past. But I was parked at the Kitts area park going to the Cactus Club. And I was coming back to my car. And I could see a ticket on the windshield of my car. And I still had 10 minutes left on my, my ticket. So I phoned mm. them up the following day and, and left a message. Never heard back. A week later, I phoned back. A week later, I phoned back. They make it almost impossible to get in touch with them. And then somebody finally answered the door. And it took me another probably six weeks. They said they had to look at what was going on. And I said, well, I... I've emailed you this proof. I have my ticket. says I have 10 minutes left, and you've given me a ticket. Like, and my time hasn't even expired. So, you know, they, they, I think there needs to be some form of regulation on these people because they just do what they want. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't think you're not going to get a loan for a house if you haven't paid a parking ticket. So I never pay the parking tickets <laughs> for the private parking lots i did okay have they they ever tried to have they ever tried to hunt you down though have they ever sick like a collector on your repo man or something i've maybe had that happen once where you got a letter from ontario a letter yeah i just i just ignore it and it goes away so okay okay well i don't know do you think there should be tougher restrictions on these private parking lots kyla Oh, absolutely. I think the government, you know, has a very easy job in in regulating uh, this area. And it would certainly be more fair to the public if there were rules around what these companies can do and and prevent it from being exploitative by demanding completely disproportionate fines in response to people parking there for maybe 15 minutes longer than they should have. 
Yeah. George in Maple Ridge. Hi, George. Go ahead. Hi. My daughter got one of those tickets in my wife's car. If you read the documents they send you, they never say that they're going to prosecute you. This is a private launch. What they say is they're going to seek authority to go after you. And frankly, they don't have the statutory power to levy fines in the first place. What, what, what do you mean? What do you mean they don't have the authority? Well, if you go for a city ticket, yeah. they do have the authority to go after you. But if you look at these private lots, there's nothing that says anywhere that they can uh, actually give you a fine. It well, says it's authority to do this and blah, blah, blah. Well, hang on a second, though, Kyla. Kyla, I mean, aren't you entering into a basically a, like a private contractual obligation when you agree to go into one of these lots? Essentially, yes. There's signage yeah. in almost all the lots that say that, you know, by parking here, you're agreeing to the terms of our contract, which include that yeah. you pay for the parking. Um, they don't have the ability to levy a fine as the term fine is understood in law. But I, I think that's a little bit of, of sort of cuteness with respect to language, because what they're essentially doing is they're they're giving you an offer to settle a, a civil claim that they have against you for the trespass or for the theft of the parking um, on the basis of the amount that they're they're suggesting. So it's it's not a fine as we understand that in law, but from a common you know parlance perspective, yeah, it's a fine. Yeah, yeah. Scott in Maple Ridge. Hi, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah, on that, this is sort of what I'm. My question for Colin, what I've never understood: if somebody torts me and I seek remedy, I have to go and get a judgment from the court in order to to get a fine or to get to get you know retribution. You know what I mean? Why why is it that they don't have to do that? What do you, they don't have to do what? They don't have to go in front of a judge, you mean? Why do they not have to go to court? Why, why, is it, why am I automatically guilty? Kyla, we got a minute left here. Go ahead. I mean, you're not automatically guilty. Again, it's, it's essentially them saying that they have a claim against you, and they could prosecute that claim. But if you pay them this amount of money, they're not going to take any steps to do it. Um, the reality is they're never going to file a civil lawsuit against a person for parking in their parking lot uh, for, you know, for an hour or for even a day because the cost of filing the lawsuit far outweighs whatever they would collect in the end. So while it is true that if somebody commits a tort against you, you have to go to small claims court and settle that, you can send them something known as a demand letter saying, you know, you committed this tort. If you give me this amount of money, I won't take you to small claims court or I won't take you to the civil resolution tribunal or I won't take you to BC Supreme Court and sue you. And that is essentially what the parking ticket is. It's a demand yeah. letter in the form of a ticket. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.